the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 4. Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Changed the World. Talking with Chelsea Follett of the Cato Institute. Our guest today is Chelsea Follett, policy analyst and managing editor of humanprogress.org. She joins us from her office in Washington, D.C. Hi, Chelsea, and welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me. Chelsea, in your new book, you recount the march of progress of humankind in 40 key advancements, going back to agriculture, writing, public health, religion, enlightenment, industrialization, printing, technology, and right up to the digital revolution. In all those examples and many others of human evolution, they occurred in cities. It seems that once our ancestors ceased to be hunter-gatherers and settled creating communities, they were at their creative and innovative best. Tell us about Centers of Progress and give us the premise of your book. Thank you for the opportunity to do so. So Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Changed the World, is about the sites of pivotal advancements in, as you pointed out, a bunch of different areas, science, technology, the arts, human rights, and more. And each city in the book is profiled during a particular moment in history when it contributed disproportionately to human progress. And so the book moves chronologically from the end of the last ice age and the dawn of agriculture and permanent settlements, moving through time right up until the modern age and the digital revolution. So it's a crash course in world history, focusing on history as a series of innovations and ideas. And it features a very diverse set of cities, mm-hmm. while many will be familiar to anyone who's taken a history of Western civilization course, places like classical Athens and Renaissance Florence. There are also many cities scattered in different areas, some of which I can guarantee even the most enthusiastic history buff will have not heard of. Mm -hmm. I can guarantee that no matter how much you love history, you will learn at least something new from this book. It features places like uh, Mohenjo-Daro, where the ancient Indus Valley civilization created incredible innovations in sanitation that saved many lives. Places like Nan Madol, a stone city in today's Micronesia that showcases the reach of the earliest seafarers. All sorts of different places around the world have become centers of progress. And although they are very diverse geographically and in other ways, there were some common themes that stood out. Most cities in the book, although there are some exceptions, reached their creative peak during times of relative peace and relative freedom. And of course, relatively high population. I mean, that is what distinguishes cities from other places, right? It seems that when people gather together in cities, as you say, 
But when you have more people concentrated in one place, you can engage in mutually beneficial cooperation and exchange and also competition. These things drive progress forward if the people in those cities are given the freedom to do so and the security to do so in times of peace. I think you've answered my next question, which is, why does humankind seem to be at their creative best in an urban environment? Could you expand on that a little bit, Chelsea? Absolutely. So it's true that some of the earlier cities in the book, which again moves chronologically, might not be cities by our modern standards. Often their populations were relatively small, what we might think of as small towns. But for the time, because remember, global population was much lower back then, they represented significant population centers. And wherever you had a concentration of more people who were able to bounce their ideas off of each other, you ended up with new innovations. The best-selling author, Matt Ridley, who wrote The Rational Optimist, The Evolution of Everything and How Innovation Works, who kindly provided the foreword for the book, notes in that foreword that progress is a team sport. Ideas happen between minds more than within them. And so when you have different people working together, engaging in exchange of ideas, that's when you often get incredible innovations. When you have collaboration, whether that's among scientists or artists, and also when you have competition, people becoming motivated and incentivized to try to excel, that's when you often get incredible positive change that we all benefit from. Well, Chelsea, let's begin with the first city that you profile, Jericho, which is in today's West Bank, Palestine. You cite Jericho. It's been an established place of population for almost 11,000 years. And you cite Jericho as the beginning point, if you will, of agriculture. Let's start with Jericho. Certainly. So because the book moves chronologically, many of the earliest cities it profiles are in the Fertile Crescent region of the Middle East where uh, many scholars believe civilization began. That's the region that gave us permanent settlement and agriculture, that gave us writing and legal codes. So Jericho is what many scholars believe to be the oldest city. Obviously, there's some debate about that. Mm -hmm. And for many of the older cities featured in the book, there are a lot of unknowns. We don't know exactly where in the Middle East agriculture began, but around Jericho, that is where we saw some of the earliest evidence of cultivated figs, of cultivated early forms of wheat. And it seems like these communities uh, that began permanent settlement in Jericho and the surrounding area were among the earliest people to give up their nomadic wanderings and begin an entirely new way of life that set humanity on a new course by planting, deliberately planting food instead of simply foraging it from the wild. And that changed the Neolithic Revolution. Uh, it's a great place to begin the book because being the earliest city, we see that that change, permanent settlement, was intimately connected with the establishment of cities. And while there have been, of course, many innovations and inventions throughout history in rural communities as well, 
there is a reason progress tends to emerge from cities. Moving forward through the book, we see that settled communities of people rather than nomadic tribes or individuals living off on their own or very, very small communities tended to create progress, whether that's the earliest evidence of fish farming and aquaculture at the historic site at Bujbim in today's Australia, the earliest writing in Uruk, again in the Middle East, advancements in medicine in Memphis and Old Kingdom Egypt. Again and again, we see that it is urban environments that can uh, that we can trace these different innovations throughout history to. They're often centered in urban areas. Now, that's not to say that all cities become centers of progress. Obviously, mm-hmm. cities can be they can be unpleasant places to live as well. They can uh, deal with sanitation issues. Uh, For example, that's one of the earliest challenges that humans encountered when they first created cities. And as you had larger and larger populations living together, they could be vulnerable to disease. Mm -hmm. And so one of the early cities featured in the book is Mohenjo-Daro, the Indus Valley civilization in what is today Pakistan, that created this historic city. We don't know much about them. They're a bit mysterious, but the largest structure in their city was the bathhouse. It seems to have been the most important thing to them. Mm. We don't know if they had a king. We don't know what their political structure was like, but the largest and most prominent structure was the bathhouse in every single home in this ancient community. Even the humblest had primitive sanitation system of some Mm. kind and they arguably enjoyed the best plumbing of the ancient world these simple things that we take for granted now like sanitation writing farmed food were not things that our ancestors could necessarily take for granted the modern world was created over time by people creating innovations often working together collaborating sometimes in competition with one another and these innovations, again and again, can be traced to cities. But again, it's not all cities. It's usually cities that had relative freedom, especially as you move forward in history, closer to our present day. You see that it's cities with policies and institutions of relative freedom and openness that tend to foster artistic and scientific achievement. That means that includes openness to foreign people's ideas trade international trade has been incredibly enriching mm-hmm. to many of the cities in the book and of course the sharing of information i think of the printing press and gothenburg and mainz and of course which then once the printing press had been developed that then made the bible which was uh, a text I guess a universal text, at least in Europe at that time, made it more readily accessible, which then begat the Reformation, which then begat the Enlightenment. I mean, you you can see how that the invention of the printing press begat so many other advancements, both in terms of intellectual advancements and personal advancements, personal freedoms. Uh, you use a German phrase in your preface, which... Pardon my German, but it's Stadtluft macht frei, which is city air makes you free. Tell us what the origin of that is. And it's interesting that it came from Germany. 
Certainly. So that was a saying related to a law at the time that granted medieval serfs independence after they lived in a city for a year and a day. But I argue in that preface that the saying has a much wider application than its coiners intended because the cities so often have fostered greater freedom than other communities, especially we see that intellectual freedom Mm -hmm. is something that helps cities make incredible progress. You can see that the Enlightenment uh, Paris, you can see that in Edinburgh during the Scottish Enlightenment, you see that during the Dutch Golden Age in Amsterdam especially, which welcomes writings that people couldn't publish elsewhere and welcomed uh, sort of intellectual refugees from different parts of Europe. When a city had an atmosphere of openness and intellectual debate and fostered those discussions and allowed for that kind of intellectual freedom, that's often when people made huge leaps in all sorts of different areas of human achievement. And of course, speaking of intellectual achievement, the founding of the first university in Bologna in Italy, 1080, and how the the concept of higher level education just spread by leaps and bounds. Tell us a little bit about the tradition of the university, because from the university, so many of the, the technological innovations, the intellectual innovations that we that we enjoy today sprouted in universities. That's true. And although there is a chapter, uh, Bologna, on the origins of the university, that's not the only chapter focused on a university. Edinburgh and the birth of modern social science and the Scottish Enlightenment was essentially a small university town that really punched above its weight. And Cambridge, uh, where... We really saw some pivotal events in the scientific revolution, such as the publication of Isaac Newton's Principia. That was another university city, right? So, so many of these innovations, you're right, are connected in some way to one another. Many of them built upon one another. But Bologna was the first time that we saw university. Of course, the first university is also the subject of some contention. Uh, There are some different places that have been put forward as possibly the first university. depends on what you count as a university, but certainly the first university in its modern form, awarding degrees in different subject areas in the form of a modern university, was in Bologna in the Middle Ages. And uh, that innovation came about in a fascinating way. It involved a lot of pupils from abroad, which included other areas of Italy, but Italy was not a unified political entity, so they would have counted as as foreign students, Um, being in one place and forming a uh, protective guild for themselves to try to protect themselves from a rule at the time of collective punishment, which was a, a strange concept to us now, but at the time, if Now, one Frenchman was in debt, another Frenchman could be forced to pay his debt. If one Hungarian committed a crime, another Hungarian could be made to pay that debt or serve even Hmm. uh, a sentence in jail. And this bothered a lot of the foreign students that had been drawn into Bologna as a sort of intellectual capital to study. And so they formed a guild. And from uh, the word for guild, we get uh, the term university. It's a fascinating story. 
these moments in history, whether it was a group of students forming the first university or whether it's uh, people first venturing out into the sea, their early ships not knowing whether they'd survive, or people meeting in the salons in Paris to discuss philosophy. Uh, allowing you to sort of eavesdrop on these pivotal moments in history was the idea of the book, to provide a, a time travel cruise to these different locations and let you feel like you're able to witness these different key moments of innovation throughout history. Let's move on to the Industrial Revolution, of course, which began in England in the late 18th, 19th century. Without the creation of those those cities, I dare say the Industrial Revolution, which began so many technological advancements, created untold wealth, not only in England, the British Isles, but throughout Europe, the United States, Asia. That concept of the Industrial Revolution could only, I dare say, have taken place in the context of a city. All of the material technological advancement that we've seen as a result of the Industrial Revolution and also the social advancement and the social reforms that came as a result of the greater wealth creation, the social movements of union movements, etc., of the 19th century. Talk to me about the importance of the Industrial Revolution and cities. The vast majority of wealth that has ever been created has been created after the Industrial Revolution. That's when we really saw GDP per capita take off. And then shortly thereafter, when there were more advancements in public sanitation, also human lifespans. If you look at all of human history, it represents, and you look at average income throughout all of human history, it resembles a hockey stick with a long, flat, unchanging shaft and then an upward facing blade when suddenly, after not changing for thousands of years, Mm -hmm. income exploded. The nature of that explosion is difficult to fathom. It completely altered human life, where, Mm -hmm. as before, the vast majority of people of our ancestors were living lives of poverty that is hard to even imagine today. Suddenly, for the first time, you had a huge, unprecedented explosion in wealth. And while that transition was certainly very difficult, the people who lived in Manchester, which I feature as sort of the heart of industrialization. Yes. They worked in conditions that today we recognize are not, they would not be acceptable to a modern person. It was very difficult work, very dangerous, and the conditions were often incredibly harsh. That transition that they went through nonetheless paved the way to the post-industrial prosperity that we enjoy today and so many other changes. So you're right that it was an incredibly pivotal moment. It definitely needed to be there in the book. And even though the book is such a broad sweep of history, going again all the way back to the founding of agriculture, you'll notice that as we get more and more recent in time, as the book moves on, uh, there are more and more cities featured in the modern era than in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's because progress really has sped up incredibly as we progressed as a species, and the Industrial Revolution was a turning point. You know, it's, it's interesting when, when you think about 
the population of the United States at the very beginning of the 20th century, 1900, the very beginning of the 19th century, the, the vast majority of Americans lived on the farm lived in Mm -hmm. the countryside. They did not live in cities. We were not, the population was not largely urban, but fast forward not even a hundred years, and that shift from a rural population to an urban population, which took place throughout the 20th century, and we've we've reached a point today where, what is it, less than 5%, is it 2% of Americans live on the farm? The latest figure I saw is that 1.3% of Americans are farmers. That's amazing. It is. And at the same time, we're producing so much more food than we ever have. A huge surplus that we trade with the rest of the world. If you look at data, which you can find on humanprogress.org or readily on other websites as well, on the number of calories we produce per person per day, you'll see that globally we now produce far more than the 2,000 recommended calories per individual per day. And that's even true in the poorest region of the world, sub-Saharan Africa. Today, famines only occur in places where war or natural disasters or other destabilizing events prevent that food from getting where it needs to go. But we produce more than enough food to feed everyone. And that's thanks to all of these incredible innovations that different people have made throughout time. And many of them are featured in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know, it's interesting. The The pull of the city transcends culture, race, religion, climate, continent, anywhere in the world. Someone who lives in the countryside who wants to better themselves, one of the first things they do is make a beeline for the city. You, you've seen, I guess, you know, in the late... 20th century, early 21st century, you saw that massive movement of population in China from the countryside into the cities. But China was just one example of so many other countries around the world, whether India and Africa and Latin America, where people have fled the countryside, have gone to the city. So so this is a universal drive, regardless of race, creed, color, religion, climate, geography, Everybody wants to go to cities. Do we and our leaders truly appreciate the power and magic of cities in this march towards progress? Well, I hope that if people read the book, and thank you again for giving me the opportunity to talk about it, that will help them appreciate the role that cities have played throughout our history. And again, it's not just cities. The real magic seems to be in certain kinds of cities that foster an atmosphere of openness and innovation and that give people who live there the freedom as well as the the peace, the security to pursue new innovations and discoveries and to try out new, new ways of creating art and so forth. Can you give us, can you look into your crystal ball and give us a sense of what are some of these, say if we were doing this podcast 50 years from now, at the end of the 21st century, what cities would you be citing as cities that have, uh, that have become great and fulfilled the, the dreams of their, their citizens that have not done so today, but 50 years from now, we'll, we'll be talking about them in those terms? Well, 
One of the big takeaways I think readers will notice if they read through every single one of the 40 city profiles is that these centers of progress are very brief. Uh, their creative peak is like a, a flicker in history, usually only a period of a few decades. And then it's gone. There are so many cities throughout the book like Baghdad, which was once a huge center of scholarship and astronomy and math. And today, people probably would not describe Baghdad as a center of progress. It lost first it, factions within the elites of the society, disagreed on the direction it should be headed in, and they lost track of many of the policies and institutions that had allowed it to flourish, and they became a more closed society, a less open, less free society, and later uh, war and various forms of instability followed. And so it lost those prerequisites for success, such as freedom and peace. And so when you're trying to predict where is the next brief flicker of progress going to occur, you have to keep in mind that progress is very fragile. It's not irreversible. It can change very quickly. And just as you can lose what makes a city great very quickly, uh, you also can fortunately, gain those conditions for progress very quickly. And so many cities in the book were unlikely centers of progress, whether it's Hong Kong, which went from one of the poorest, most devastated, war-devastated, unhygienic, truly not a good place to live areas of the world, to suddenly being one of the wealthiest, most prosperous. You couldn't have predicted that at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. But if you look at some of the policies people were implementing to try to open the society, give people the freedom to innovate, to rebuild their city, and to recover from war and to move out of poverty, that might have given you a hint that you were standing somewhere where things were about to change dramatically. But again and again, we see whether it's Edinburgh, which also emerged from decades of instability, political instability, to suddenly become a center of the Scottish Enlightenment, or Renaissance Florence, which recovered from the Black Death pandemic, which killed an unthinkable percentage of the population to become, you know, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, this incredible center of progress. We see again and again that no matter how unlikely a place might seem as a candidate for a center of progress, it is possible for that city to rise up and become the site of incredible advancements in a variety of areas. So I would say you can't predict it, but what we do know is that certain policies of freedom and openness seem to help. Well, Chelsea, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts for our listeners, apart from we want to encourage all the listeners to buy and read the book, but what are your closing thoughts for the listeners? I hope that you will check out the book, first of all. It is a very accessible, readable crash course in history, and it tells history in a sort of unique way as this series of innovations and ideas. And I'd also ch encourage you to check out humanprogress.org if you're not a book person but you are interested in learning about all of the progress that humanity has made over time perhaps by instead exploring data or short articles maybe you don't have time for a book but you would like to consume written content that is a bit shorter and that puts data into perspective 
I think that you will find something on the website to be of interest to you. Well, Chelsea, where can our listeners buy a copy of Centers of Progress? The book comes out on September 19th, but it is available for pre-order now from all major book retailers, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, Thrift Books, and others. If you just Google Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Changed the World, you will be able to buy it online anywhere books are sold pretty much. And when we get closer to the publication date, you'll also be able to buy the book directly from Cato's book website since it is published through the Cato Institute. And Chelsea, how can our listeners follow you? And you did mention that there will be a book signing coming up, so please share that. Uh, The listeners can follow me at Chellivia with two L's on Twitter, or they can follow Human Progress on Twitter. Human Progress also has a very active Instagram, Facebook, and uh, now a TikTok as well. So I encourage listeners to follow us there. As for book signing on October 2nd, we will be having an event at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. that people can attend in person, and that will also be live streamed about the book. It will feature both myself and a brilliant historian, Jack A. Goldstone, an expert on the history of economic development and social change, who will be providing further insights into what allows a place to really flourish and prosper and why development occurred in some areas before others historically. Well, Chelsea, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It was very readable. It's working its way through my family. My wife and I have both read it. It's moving on now to my daughter's family. We need to make sure that we get a couple of other copies in circulation also <laughs> to boost sales. But um, very readable, very informative. And I think every single one of those 40 cities, I learned something new. I actually learned something new from your book. So again, from each of those 40 profiles, I learned something new. So again, thank you for all the research that you did. And I look forward to following up with the book signing. And again, best of luck. And I'm sure you won't need it because it's such a great book. Thank you again so much for the opportunity to join you. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 429, the San Francisco Experience podcast was recently recognized as one of the top 25 California news podcasts by Feedspot. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We appear on 18 different podcast platforms. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco. (laughs) 